May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Those are verses 31 to 34 of Psalm 104, the psalm which is appointed for today, May the 16th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are at the birthday of the church, the day on which the mission moves beyond just the disciples and those who are in Jerusalem at the time, and it becomes a worldwide phenomenon. It's Pentecost Sunday. Uh, in the Anglican tradition, we celebrate that. We wear red for as though the church had been set on fire that day. And in many churches, we tie balloons along the pews, the chairs, or whatever, red balloons lifting into the air like those tongues of fire that we see coming and resting on the apostles this day, the day that the spirits poured out in Jerusalem and then people from all over the world hear the gospel preached in their own languages. And so we want to look at that today and see what the implications of that are for us today and every day of our lives. Why is it important that the Spirit be poured out on all flesh? And largely, it's because Jesus promised that it would. And we can't do the mission that we've been given to do unless we, who speak the Word of God to others, have the Spirit of God. And then no one can receive the message unless they likewise have the Spirit of God. Because it's not our flesh and blood that receives this truth, and that's shown in Nicodemus in the encounter Jesus has with him that says you must be reborn of water and the Spirit. And so to be reborn, born again, requires us to be reborn with a new spirit in us. There's the spirit that God gave to all flesh when he created Adam and Eve. He creates the man and then he takes that man in his hands, quote unquote, and then he breathes life into the man. He breathes a different kind of spirit than is given to um, the rest of the animal kingdom. We are differentiated in that way. And so so that's the first birth of man. And, and it's a wonderful thing for Nicodemus that he is part of the tribe of, uh, of probably a tribe of Judah and he is um, a descendant of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a wonderful thing, but, but Jesus tells him you've got to be reborn and he can't imagine what that actually means. Although he perseveres and persists in being at least around the edges of this movement until the crucifixion and then he and Joseph of Arimathea go and retrieve the body of Jesus. And so the Spirit is active in moving in him to recognize something about this man he originally called Rabbi. And now we're positive that he became one of the leaders of the early church and it's because the Spirit had been given to him to receive the truth of the message. And so there's no impediment to that message, the, tr- the, the Holy Spirit is given to break through the impediment that refuses to see the truth. And so God gives us new life by giving us a new spirit beyond the spirit that's been given in the creation of, of man, beyond consciousness to something totally different. And so faith then becomes the operative thing that allows us to get greater and greater understanding. So it's the beginning point of the church, and it's the beginning point of the church living into the mission 
that it's been given, and it comes in sort of an unlikely way, right? Because the the reality is, is Pentecost is not a Christian term. It comes from a Jewish festival called Shavuot, which is the the barley harvest festival. And so they bring these things 50 days after Passover. They bring the, these first fruits of the harvest, and it's a joyous celebration as they come to Jerusalem. And the same people who had been there 50 days before for many of those who will be here this day because this is one of the appointed feasts that requires uh, an observant Jew to go to Jerusalem to keep the feast sometime at least once during his life. And so you get this crowd of people coming into Jerusalem in the same way you did 50 days before that for the Passover feast. But now the mood is different. It's not the somber recollection of the plagues visited on Egypt and the joy of coming out of Egypt at the Passover. No, this one is purely joy. And the rejoicing in the first fruits of the harvest in the promised land that God has given them. And so they no longer are those who eat manna in the wilderness. Now they're those who partake in the abundant produce of the land flowing with milk and honey that the Lord had provided. And so here we come, and everybody's here. There's a second thing that happens at Shavuot, and it's more important today than it was at the time of Jesus, but it's always been part of it, and it's the belief that the law is given at Sinai on Shavuot. And so there's the joint celebration of the giving of the law, and most people don't celebrate the giving of the law, except for it's a celebration of the lawgiver and the goodness of the lawgiver. And, and so because the lawgiver is himself good, then the law itself must be good. And we should love the law the way David loved the law, in, as, and as he describes it in Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm of all, and, and it's an ode to the law. And how keeping the law and the precepts of the law themselves are something to rejoice in. And so, so the, the, the giving of the law should be a cause of rejoicing and it calls even greater joy in the celebration. They also believe that David himself was born and died on Shavuot. They, they see that connection between David and the law as being an inextricable connection. And so here what we get is the, the birth of the understanding in the people of God, the, the people that God's calling to himself, the truth concerning his son Jesus, who is the fulfillment and the embodiment of the word of God. And so they're celebrating the law as given through Moses, and we then celebrate the revelation of Jesus Christ given by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost in much the same way. The Jews will spend all night, some will, in studying the law of God during Shavuot um, because they want to show him how much they love his law. And they, they reaffirm their commitment to treasure and obey God's law by doing so. And so it's, it's an exciting kind of time. There's multiple things being celebrated in all this, though. One of the things that's being celebrated is the Hebrew language itself, which they believe to be the language of God. And, the, and, and so that he gave Torah without having it be translated at all. He spoke the language of the people, and that's the proof that it's the language of God. And so the, the, the language is an important part of this celebration as well. But it's the fulfillment of God's promise given in Torah and also the giving of Torah that's being celebrated along with this harvest. 
And so here come all these people to Jerusalem. It's a great crowd of people there. And so on the day of Pentecost, they, the disciples, and we don't know who else, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. The only other place that we see something resting on somebody is when Jesus is baptized by John in the River Jordan and the, the dove descends from heaven and rests on Jesus. And that's the sign that authenticates Jesus. There, there could have been false signs because John had been told this would be the sign. There could have been false signs of this thing coming down, this dove coming down and alighting on someone. But no, the resting on, the remaining on is the part that's important. And so here also it is with these divided tongues of fire appeared to them. They see these things and they rest on each of them, authenticating them as the continuers of the tradition and also authenticating their message. To all who would hear it. And then it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now, that we don't know, honestly. We've got two different kinds of tongues we've already encountered in this passage, and that is the tongues of fire, but then also they began to speak in other tongues. And we have no earthly idea. It seems that these tongues that they're speaking in here are tongues of other peoples so there it's not glossolalia which is not a language but it's a prayer language or something like that is there's no great way to translate that it's speaking in an unknown tongue might be a better way to translate it but here these tongues are known that, that or the interpretation of what's being said is being given by the Spirit to those who hear, and they're hearing it in their own tongue, and that's what it says. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, and that's not living in Jerusalem, they were staying in Jerusalem. Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So we don't know exactly what's going on here. Were the disciples speaking separately in the tongue of the people who were hearing or were the people who were hearing then given a measure of the Holy Spirit to understand what was being spoken in their own language? And so they were amazed and astonished and said, aren't these people who are speaking all Galileans? Don't they live up there in the north somewhere, those hicks who are separate and apart from Jerusalem? And, you know, the, the further you get from Jerusalem, the presumption is that the faith and truth and all that kind of stuff, Judaism itself gets weakened the further it gets from Jerusalem. And, and Galilee is the northern extremity of the kingdom or the land that still remains to the remaining tribes. And so the presumption at some level is this bias against those rubes from out there on the edges of Judaism. And so, but instead, what they said, aren't these all speaking Galileans? And how is it that we all hear each of us in his own language? And listen to this list of nations that they mentioned, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. 
I mean, you got people coming from the center of the Roman Empire and then spreading out, in, mostly in a southerly direction from there. But these people come from many of the most important nations on the earth. You know, you remember this, the laws of the Medes and Persians are listed earlier, so that would be the people around Iran and all that. And so the, these people are the, are the Jewish diaspora who no longer live in the land. They're living in other places. And, and so those people, all the way up through northern Africa and into Rome then from there, are, are people who are here at this time. And they say both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, again, that word comes up, the mighty works of God. And what is a tongue but a language? And it's the, the tongues that are confused in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. They've come together because they had one language. They come together and they say, let's make a monument for ourselves. Let's make our, a name for ourselves that reaches into the heavens. Why do you want to reach into the heavens? It's because you believe your name is so great that it can be exalted into the heavens. And then what does God have to do? He says, let's go down there and see what's going on. And then he confuses the language because if they come together, they can do anything. There's nothing that will be too hard for them. And so that's the reason the confusion of languages and tongues comes into being is because God said they're making a name for themselves. That's what they've said is their goal, is to make a name for themselves. And so if we divide the tongues, then they'll divide all over the earth, and they'll divide into, into separate entities, and they'll no longer cooperate fully with one another. And so now, here on the day of Pentecost, all these people are hearing the gospel preached to them in their various languages. So it's also, in addition to restoring the curse of Babel, it, it's also doing a second thing, right? It's, it's saying, yes, the Hebrew language is important because the Torah was given in Hebrew, but at the same time, what's more important than that are the people, the people of the earth who have their own languages. And so we can't exalt the Hebrew language even though we might believe it's the language of God because it is the, the language in which the Torah is given. We can't exalt that to the heavens because God cares about all flesh. And so God allows these people who in some cases probably are, are nominal or non-Hebrew speakers, and they're able to hear the word of God, perhaps for the very first time, in their own language. Which means it's the language of the heart. It's the language of the people that matters. It's not the lingua franca. It's not Greek. It's not Latin. No, it's the language to which they're accustomed. It's the language their heart speaks. You know, I can learn a second language, but I'm never going to have the same connection with that language and the ability to express myself in that language in the same way because it's not my heart language. It's not the first thing that I learned. And so I have a better facility with the English language than I would with French, for instance, or with Greek. Um, I, I have a much better facility with that. I, I can speak it naturally and without having to think about it. And so that's what's happening here is these people are receiving the word of God, not in a language that's foreign to them or a secondary language to them, but in their primary language. And so God's making of all peoples one. He's gathering the people together. This in-gathering is happening here at this time. And so all were amazed and perplexed and said to one another, what does this mean? That's the right question always to ask is, what does this mean? Does it mean something more than just, this is cool? That they're seeking a deeper meaning for what's happening here. And then others, though, mocked and said, they're just drunk. They're filled with new wine. 
And at the harvest festival, that's part of the thing, is it's truly a festival. But Peter stands with the eleven, lifts his voice, and addresses the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So the people who live here, and then also the people who are here. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. But that, what, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter's giving, uh, just on the fly, Peter is given unction by the Holy Spirit to speak these words from the prophet Joel. And it's not unusual that a, that a Jewish man who was seeking after Messiah would know the word of God and know it right off the top of his tongue. But the application of that, it's amazing. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that, that Peter is able to recall and find that piece of scripture and say, this is what's happening today. God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And this is the beginning of the ingathering of the harvest. It's the beginning of this season of signs and wonders. And it's the beginning of God doing something new and fresh. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That begs some further explanation. And he's going to give the context for what that means to call upon the name of the Lord. And what name is it that's given? And he's going to be very, very clear again and again and again, particularly in the first part of Acts, we're told Peter's proclamation all through the first part of the book of Acts, whether he's here on this day or whether he's standing in the temple after healing the people, the man at the beautiful gate, or whether he's standing before the Sanhedrin in response to that healing, he preaches the same simple message. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and there's only one name given under heaven under which a man might be saved. And so when Peter says here, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, he's speaking very specifically about Jesus. And he goes on to make that clear in the next part of the proclamation that he gives here on the day of Pentecost. But, but the Spirit is clearly involved in bringing all of this together. None of it is a natural thing. Every single thing you see here is a supernatural move of God. And when was the last time you saw a supernatural move of God? When was the last time that you saw Him do something that only He could do? I hope if you've been on this journey with me and Suzanne and Will over the last uh, period of time that you could say I'm seeing it right now in real time I'm seeing God do something that no one else could do no one on earth could have done that no one could have saved him no one could have given him life in the way that God's giving him life and so we're seeing right now among us a spectacular move of God and I'm seeing him do something that only he can do and all the physicians and other medical professionals would agree that that's absolutely true and so it's it's a powerful thing but but sometimes it comes completely out of the blue we certainly weren't expecting what happened and we certainly didn't expect that oh, okay over the next little bit of time we're going to see God do an extraordinary thing kind of culminating in some ways on the day of Pentecost because we're going home in two days 
So we, we, we need to be always on the lookout and prepared for God to break in and do something amazing, to show himself and reveal himself, but it's all for his glory, and he won't share his glory with another. And that gets us to kind of next week at some level. We're not there yet, obviously. But in this gospel lesson today, Jesus is, is speaking to the disciples at, at the Last Supper. And he's giving them instructions for when he's going to depart from them. And he tells them, but when the Helper comes, this is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Jesus proceeds from the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. He will uh, bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And so there's this joint witness of the Spirit and the apostles. He says, I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you remember that I told you to them. In other words, I'm speaking prophetically about what is going to come. You don't have to worry about these things, but I want you to know in advance what's going to come because that's further authenticating Jesus as who he is. He said, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. There was no reason to talk about the Holy Spirit. There was no reason to talk about all of that because you had to first go through much other experience in order that you could see that I'm indeed the Son of God. And so he says, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Certainly it had. They, they didn't want to believe or even imagine that Jesus could be taken away from him, much less dying on a cross. He said, but nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so the failure to believe in him is sin. And it's the sin that Peter speaks of in the rest of this sermon here on the day of Pentecost. And also the message that he gives at the temple. And then also the message that he gives to the Sanhedrin. Which is to say, this one you've rejected. God sent him anointed him and appointed him, laid his hands on him, proclaimed him from heaven to be his son in whom he was well pleased, and then you put him on a cross and crucified him. That's the sin that the Holy Spirit will convict of. And, and it's, he's convicting these people on the day of Pentecost who are his hearers, and we know that the Spirit's convicting through the power of Peter's message, but through the power of the Holy Spirit given to these people to convict them of sin. He's, they're being convicted of the sin of crucifying the Son of God, the Messiah. And their, their response to that is, what must we do to be saved? So the Spirit's at work in the proclamation and the reception, and then they want to know what they have to do to be saved. And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And, and that had to be the most bizarre response they could ever have imagined Peter was going to give because, wait a minute, we crucified Messiah. It's probably going to require a little more than repenting and being baptized. What's the sacrifice necessary to atone for the sin of crucifying our Messiah, God's anointed? There's nothing in Torah that says how to fix that. There's no provision for fixing the crucifixion of the Messiah. And Peter says it's to repent and be baptized. And so they've been convicted of sin in this. And Peter's told them the solution 
to that sin. And then he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no more. So the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven convicts the world of the righteousness of Jesus. Because he goes to the Father and you'll see me no more. That's the righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness that we're convicted of in concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Not the world, but the ruler of the world, Satan is who he's speaking about, is being judged in Jesus' resurrection. And so now we have a choice to make. Are we going to follow the one who's been resurrected and ascended, or are we going to follow the one who is the ruler of the world who has been judged? And his day is over with. And the proof that his day is over with is Jesus overcomes death, which was his only power, was death in the grave. And Jesus has conquered that. And so the ruler of the world has been judged and he's been found wanting. There's a Messiah. There's a one who is the Redeemer who will take us to be with himself. And, he's, and, and um, Jesus goes on to say, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. There's a lot of stuff you need to know. I can't give it all to you right now. There's some things you're going to have to wait to see the truth of, the meaning of, which is the question that people ask Peter at the, on the day of Pentecost, when they see all these things, what does it mean? And then Peter's going to give the meaning in the rest of that sermon. And so here he says, I, I, you can't bear these other things now, but when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. For he'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. And so Jesus has given us a Trinitarian formula here. Whether you see it or not, it's there. And the reason that I know it's there, and you may not have seen it, is because the things that he ascribes to the Spirit here, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he'll speak, and he'll declare to you the things that will come. Those are exactly the things Jesus said he was doing. Whatever he hears the Father saying, he speaks, and whatever he sees the Father doing, he does. So it's, it's that same thing is what he's saying about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's mission is to do what he sees the Father doing and, hear, and speak what he hears. So it's not direct, it's mediated, but it's perfectly mediated. And so that's the, the point of that is to say he's going to do and continue the work that I've done. He's going to continue to make known to you things that, that come from the Father. So there'll be further truth about all these things that's going to come and it's going to be declared to, to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, he'll glorify me. And Jesus' mission was to glorify the Father. And so he's saying, he's take what is mine and declare it to you. And then he goes on to say very quickly, all the Father has is mine. And so we're clearly pointing towards a Trinitarian understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. And the source of that understanding is Jesus. And the way that he describes the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit is akin to the ministry that he had. It's the continuation of the ministry of Jesus comes through the Holy Spirit poured out into us who are, who are commanded to go and make disciples and baptize them and teaching them to do everything that Jesus commanded. So the Holy Spirit working through us is the continuation of the work of Jesus. And if we think about it that way, and I think that, that we realize the awesome responsibility that we have. And when I say awesome, I don't mean wonderful necessary. I mean frightful. That we got to get it right. That we have to faithfully preach what Jesus preached and what the Holy Spirit has taught the church down through the ages. We don't live in a time of new revelation. 
I'm not saying the same thing that other Protestants and, and even Roman Catholics might say, which is to say that we no longer have the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in the world today. I, don't, I, I think that is just wrong, completely wrong. Um, what I am saying, though, is there's no new revelation. There's not something that's going to lead us out of the truth of the Word of God written. That there's not some radical new um, morality that's been proclaimed. No, it's the same morality, and we have to proclaim it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we don't get to change the message. We don't get to change the rules. We, Peter gets a special dispensation to go to the Gentiles, and that is that, that he is to go and kill and eat, even the unclean things that he sees there. It's a very special dispensation given, but the purpose of the dispensation is for mission. And the purpose of this dispensation, the outpouring of the Spirit and, and the tongues thing, is all for the same reason. It's all about the mission. It's all about taking things into the world and the fulfillment of the commandment that Jesus had given to those people. So what was now previously sort of, you had to come into Jerusalem, you had to come into Judaism in order to become part of the people of God. And the way the end was to understand the Hebrew. And the proof is at a bar mitzvah, when the, the 13-year-old boy gets up and he reads a portion of the scripture. He reads it in Hebrew. And the point of that is to say he's now responsible for the law for himself. He has been given and he has received the law in the same way that we received it at Sinai. And so now he is responsible for that law, but it all happens in Hebrew. And here, what we get is the Spirit being poured out on all flesh in order that we can understand these things in the heart language that we have in order that we might likewise take on that same full responsibility for the Word of God. It's not above us, beyond us. It's not, you know, an excuse to say, I can't learn Hebrew. It's a difficult language because it's not the same as the language we have. It, no, you're, 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 that responsibility is laid upon you because it's possible for you to hear and receive, read, and understand. And so the message is given in that way, but it's a movement, a huge movement of the Holy Spirit that now these people are going to go back to the places where they are and tell the story of what happened. And so for those Jews who came for Passover and didn't come back for Pentecost, they're going to hear the rest of the story about that Jesus that was crucified on the Passover, and they're going to hear it having perfectly understood it because it was spoken in their own language. They didn't have to perform any act of translation to understand it. It was translated through the power of the Holy Spirit directly from them so that everyone heard the message in the truth that they could best receive. And so <clears throat> then in this Romans passage, Paul says the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For it's in this hope we're saved, not the hope. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. And so we're patiently waiting for the redemption of these mortal bodies and turned into something that, that is immortal. And so we're going to put off mortality. That's what death is. It's the putting off of the mortal body and the putting on of the immortal. And so we're waiting with anticipation that outpouring of the spirit that changes us utterly and now we live in the spirit we live in that place of immortality but we don't in the flesh 
And so the redemption of our bodies is actually death. So we, we await with patience death in a way that, that you don't if your expectation is not redemption of this mortal body. And so the Spirit tells us and bears testimony to us that this life is not all there is. There's hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. And we've seen it in Him, and now we await it in hope through faith for ourselves to participate in the resurrection of the dead and the life eternal. And he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know how to pray as we ought, for the Spirit himself intercedes with, for us with groanings too deep for words. If I pray from my flesh, I honestly don't know how to pray. I would have everybody healed, right? I mean, I don't want anybody to suffer. I don't want anybody to be in pain. I don't want any kind of pain for people. And so if I had my prayer answered today, then, then what we would see is nobody suffering. But the reality is, is Jesus says, pray for his kingdom to come. So that when the kingdom comes, there is no more pain or dying. And so if we pray for the kingdom to come, then we're praying as we ought. doesn't mean you shouldn't pray for people's healing. You should always pray for people's healing. But you should be aware of the suffering that's in the world and that we all, none of us, get out of this alive. And so we've got to be realists with respect to that. But the truth is, is, is that the Spirit knows how we ought to pray for people. And we have to be patient and allow the Spirit to pray. And he who searches hearts knows what's the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit knows the will of God. That's what Jesus was saying, that he takes from me what is mine and makes it known. And so our thing about Pentecost, let Christ be reborn in you today. Ask for more of the Holy Spirit because he's good to give more of the Holy Spirit. Ask that you might receive. Ask that you might understand. And then ask that you might be part of the mission of God across the earth in order that you might glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in all that you do and all that you say. He's given the Spirit. We can trust Him for that. And we need not trust ourselves. We just need more and more of Him.